This is The Guardian. Hi, this is Guardian Australia Reads. I'm Jane Lee. Every week, we pick some of The Guardian's best stories and then we read them aloud for you. During the pandemic, I've spent a lot of time in lockdown watching David Attenborough documentaries. They've been useful in so many ways. They've distracted me from COVID, introduced me to creatures I never knew existed, and helped me imagine a world far more interesting than my living room. And this week, we're getting out of our tiny human brains with three stories straight from the animal kingdom. First up, we go looking for cats, big cats. Now, I'm not sure I'm a believer, but this story made me wonder. Scott Lansbury had his first encounter 25 years ago. It was in the Victorian town of Upper Beaconsfield, close to midnight, where he and his brother saw the animal walking up the footpath across the road from where they lived. It was bigger than any dog I've ever seen, he recalls. Bigger than a Labrador, bigger than a German shepherd. Lansbury is convinced the mystery animal, which he says was black and walked with a feline prowl, was a big cat. According to him, he has seen similar animals several times in the intervening years. So a decade ago, he started a Facebook group, Black Panther Sightings in Victoria, sort of as a joke. Since then, the group has grown to 36,000 people. Members post a mixture of blurry images and footage, videos of big cats clearly taken in other countries, and avowed testimonies of personal encounters. Lansbury says, I look at every video that's been posted on the group. Sightings of mysterious cats in the wild and accompanying reports of strange livestock deaths are not a new phenomenon. Large felids have been rumoured to prowl the Australian bush for nearly 200 years, says David Waldron, a folklorist and historian at Federation University. The earliest reported phantom cat sighting, Waldron has identified, was near Adelaide in 1836. A sailor said he had found a cat-like animal with orange fur, black stripes down its back and white tuft ears, hunting for marsupial rats near a body of water. In the 1890s, panic erupted in the South Australian town of Tantanoola when stories emerged of a predator stalking properties, terrifying farming dogs and slaughtering sheep. Waldron says... The exotic animal trade was widespread in the late 19th century. Classified ads of the day offered leopard and panther cubs for sale. The Tantanula tiger, as it became known, was eventually caught. The beast turned out not to be a felid, but a Eurasian wolf. Equally misplaced in the Australian bush, the wolf was hypothesised to have been a boat stowaway that survived a shipwreck off the coast. It was stuffed and remains on display at the Tantanula Hotel. In the last century, rumours of wild big cats have also been fuelled by stories of escaped circus animals such as lions and tigers, and American soldiers bringing exotic pets into the country as military mascots. In Victoria, sightings have been reported in Gippsland and the Grampians National Park, while in New South Wales, there have been hundreds of reported sightings of big cats in the Blue Mountains, known as the Blue Mountains panther 
or the Lithgow lion. Last year, a video of a black cat was captured on Sydney's Upper North Shore by a university student, who described it as longer than a metre, with a body on roids. To the untrained eye, accurately estimating the size of an animal after a fleeting sighting is a difficult task, says Peter Menkhorst, an ecologist at the Arthur Ryler Institute for Environmental Research in Melbourne. Feral domestic cats, or Felis catus, can occasionally reach impressive sizes and have been behind at least some reported big cat sightings. Menkost says, if you see a feral domestic cat that maybe weighs something like 10 kilograms, which is about twice what most pet cats weigh, your initial impression might be, gee, that's a big animal. In 2005, a deer hunter, Kurt Engel, shot dead what he believed to be a black panther near Sale in East Gippsland. He estimated the cat was about 1.5 metres long. Engel kept the animal's tail as a trophy, which was 60 centimetres long, roughly twice the length of a regular domestic cat's tail. However, DNA testing later revealed the animal was actually Felis catus, a large feral cat. In 2012, a report commissioned by the Victorian government concluded that the available evidence was inadequate to establish that a wild population of big cats exists in Victoria. Menkhorst, who co-authored the report, says the chances of there being unknown big cats out in the Victorian wilderness is minuscule. No one has ever actually brought in a carcass or even part of one of these mythical beasts. One piece of unexplained evidence was a scat found in Winchelsea in 1991. Barbara Triggs, an expert in animal scats, identified the faecal sample as most likely belonging to a leopard and isolated several hairs from the scat that she believed the animal may have inadvertently ingested while grooming itself. Mitochondrial DNA in the hairs was tested in 2000, and the sequence was confirmed as belonging to a leopard, though the scientist who tested them said he could not rule out contamination. There's a lot of uncertainty around the origin of that scat. It's very inconclusive, says Menkhorst. His scepticism is also grounded in years of wildlife monitoring. We've done literally hundreds of thousands of what we call trap nights, he says, where camera traps that detect heat and motion are set out in the bush to monitor continuously for weeks at a time. Menkhorst continues, We've taken millions of photos, literally, and we've got nothing we can't explain. Everything from dunnarts up to dingoes. Lots of feral cats. No other species of cat. Given the intensity of fauna surveying we've done in Victoria in the last 50 years, It's an almost inconceivable thing that we would not have found a big cat if it did exist. Waldron agrees. He says, I am sceptical in that there's simply insufficient evidence as yet. There's nothing inherently wrong with the idea. You've just got to find positive evidence. Despite the lack of evidence, big cats in the wild have continued to hold a certain appeal. Waldron says... It re-enchants the bush. It makes it mysterious, magical. It's quite an exciting and evocative thing to do. 
He has joined big cat hunters out on tracking jaunts at night, listening for animal sounds using directional microphones. Unexplained livestock deaths may have a simple rather than eerie explanation. Waldron says, At the heart of these panics is usually stock kills that look different to how they're done normally by wild dogs. When people have gotten into it forensically, what they find causes it is multiple predation on the same carcass by different predators. A Twitch streamer by the name of Rainy J, who lives on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, has been fascinated for years by big cat stories and online groups dedicated to them. Though she is sceptical about their existence, she says there's something romantic about the whole notion that maybe there are still some big mysteries out there for people to solve. You've got people that look for Bigfoot or aliens, but for giant cats living out in the wild? That does have something plausible about it. Jay says the enchantment with the idea of big cats in the Australian wild overshadows the problem that we have with feral cats. Feral domestic cats, which pretty much cover the entire country, are both ecologically and economically damaging. It has been estimated that they kill one million birds a day. She says, That's something I think we should look at more. Lansbury has no doubt he wasn't mistaken that night 25 years ago and wants others to keep an open mind. You can definitely see why people don't believe in them, he says. You've got to see it to believe it. That was Tall Tales, Why Does the Myth of Exotic Big Cats Prowling the Australian Bush Persist? by Donna Liu. The reader was Emily Elise. Next, we're heading to the Goulburn wetlands in New South Wales, which in just two short years transformed from just a hole in the ground to a thriving ecosystem. Halfway between the Big Merino, which stands like a sentinel on the Hume Highway, and a Supermax prison, is a place known only by a few. Here, less than a kilometre to the east of Goulburn's main street, is the music of birds twittering in trees. The splash of ducks diving, the ponk-ponk-ponk of frogs in conversation, and the heady smell of eucalyptus. If a healthy landscape is one where birdsong is often heard, then the Goulburn wetlands must be one healthy landscape indeed, which is remarkable considering it is only 10 years old. And not long ago, this part of New South Wales was facing a water crisis. It was formed out of clay pits, once used by brickworks that closed just after the Second World War. For much of the most recent drought, the wetlands were just a hole in the ground. But heavy rain in 2020, and again in the spring and summer last year, brought an abundance of water. The regeneration plantings are thriving to the point that banks of wattles and eucalyptus are up to eight metres high. For local people in the know, this is the place to walk your dog in the evening, catch another glorious pink and orange sunset, and of course, see birds paddling about in search of a meal. Friends and residents of Goulburn Swamplands, frogs, is a small volunteer-run organisation that cares for and maintains the wetlands on a weekly basis. They have counted 130 different bird species. 
birdwatcher Frank Antrim says the list of birds includes the blue-billed duck, which is noted as a vulnerable species, and the ruddy turnstone, which visits from the New South Wales south coast. It even includes Latham's snipe, which flies all the way from eastern Russia and the Japanese islands, and is protected by the Japan-Australia Migratory Bird Agreement. Human visitors can enjoy three timber and iron bird hides as kangaroos laze on the nearby grasslands and snakes lurk among the ground cover. President of Frogs, Heather West, also a retired primary school teacher, says people have been drawn to the wetlands during the COVID-19 pandemic and had more time to get in touch with nature. According to West, people have been out walking whereas before lockdown they were busy driving here and there to do various activities. They've discovered that there are some really nice things to see. The link between wetlands and human health is well established. A global report by the Ramsar Convention on Wetlands in 2018 said they were critical to human and plant life. According to the Global Wetland Outlook, more than a billion people depend on wetlands for a living, and 40% of the world's species live and breed in wetlands. Wetlands also mitigate floods, provide food and resources, protect coastlines, and play an important role in cultural and spiritual well-being. But the value of these ecosystems remains largely unrecognised by policymakers around the world. Secretary-General of the Ramsar Convention, Martha Rojas-Urego, said in the Outlook. She says, The result is that 35% of wetlands, where data is available, have been lost since 1970, at a rate three times greater than that of forests. The Australian government acknowledges the vulnerability of wetlands to climate change, and Australia is a party to the Ramsar Treaty for the conservation of wetlands, but some say... More needs to be done to protect them. Bill Wilkes has been a member of Frogs since its early days. As is the way in regional areas, he is involved in other community organisations, including the Goulburn Group, whose members believe urgent action on climate change is needed. Wilkes says the idea for the Goulburn wetlands arose from various community discussions, most of which focused on water. It's not surprising considering the town almost ran out of water in 2005 during the millennium drought. Since then, the project has received funding from a variety of sources, including local, state and federal governments, as well as organisations such as Rotary. But mostly, it is a result of hard, physical work. The master plan, which aimed to recreate a sample of habitats that are thought to have once existed in the region, was also key to the success of the Golden Wetlands. Seeds from the surrounding area are collected for the wetlands under a partnership with the Australian Plant Society's local branch. West says, Because we use plants that have local provenance, we have a 90% success rate. When we first started planting, we overplanted because we thought we'd lose 50% of them over summer. These days, we water them when they go in, and we never water them again. Another key to the wetlands' success has been maintaining a network of like-minded groups, including ornithologists, the local branch of the Field Naturalist Society, the local council, and a nearby bushfire brigade, which helped to burn the site before regeneration could take place. 
The mayor of Goldman Mulwari, Bob Kirk, speaks enthusiastically about the wetlands, saying it changes the focus of the community. He says, We have high levels of sporting participation, but kids are growing up in a very different world to what their parents did and what I did. With facilities like the wetlands around to interest them, to educate them, they will pass that on to others. Goulburn MP Wendy Tuckerman says she would love to see even more investment in the wetlands to support the fantastic biodiversity and conservation efforts already undertaken by frogs. So what does West see in the wetlands' future? She says the aim is to get the wetlands to manage itself. We know the gum trees are going to fall into the ponds and the wattles are going to die after 15 years. Some gums will be bigger than others and new ones will come up and the grasses will reseed, so it should just keep on keeping on. West is interrupted by two women walking a dog. They ask if she and her band of volunteers are responsible for the wetlands. West confirms that this is the case. Thank you, beam the dog walkers. We appreciate it so very much. That was Birds, Frogs and Sunset Walks, How a Wetlands Project Transformed the New South Wales Town of Goulburn by Nigel Featherstone. The reader was Colin Smith. To see a photo of the Goulburn wetlands, follow the link on the Guardian Australia Reads website. Did you know that within two hours of being born, baby elephants can get up and walk all on their own? Unlike us human babies, most animals are fighting to stay alive as soon as they get here. For this next story, writer Natasha Cheecher finds out more about this life and death struggle at a hospital for green sea turtles. We're standing on sand dunes at the end of a hot December day. The light's fading fast and a thin crescent moon is rising in the clear sky. It's still really hot. Hot enough to dip in the ocean. But nobody does. Not because it's stinger season now, but because we're here for something better. Here, on Magnetic Island in Queensland, everyone's a volunteer and everyone's local, except me. There are kids in school uniform, parents who come from work, a retiree, a CSIRO scientist, a marine biologist called Paul, and an off-duty park ranger. We take turns peering into a blue plastic bucket. Now it's my turn. Inside is a batch of freshly hatched green sea turtles. Their easy exit from an underground nest was blocked by vegetation, so these volunteers have dug them free. Paul pulls one out and it wriggles between his hands, so tiny and lively. The next moment, it's hurtling down the thick golden sand of the beach with his brothers and sisters towards the gently lapping waves. People are releasing them one by one. The baby turtles move so fast, they might take off and fly like whirring cicadas instead of entering the sea. There are oohs and ahs and clapping and lots of smiles as each hatchling dives down and disappears. We wait a while, carefully watching the water's edge, hoping they're all safely on their way. Later, Paul tells me each one of these green turtles has just one in a thousand chance of surviving to maturity, 
Now we're focused on just one of these. It's washed back up, tried to swim again and failed, and has run out of puff. It goes back in the bucket, which I hold carefully on my lap as we drive to the hospital established and maintained by a larger group of volunteers, the Magnetic Island Network for Turtles. If this runt of the litter survives the night, it will get a revival injection and hopefully stand a chance. Nearby are adult turtles well into recovery. One is decades old and moves slowly. It came in with an impossibly mangled shell, maybe bitten by a shark. Another's younger and friskier. It was rescued with floating syndrome, caused by a gas buildup. After a turtle ingests marine debris such as plastic, which stops food being properly absorbed. This turtle splashes and bangs excitably against the walls of its circular tank and posts its nose inquisitively above the water in my direction after sizing me up. Another survivor now seems to be practicing a healthier kind of floating. It completely ignores me, makes balaic arcs with its flippers, and is a lot more zen. I'd recently flown from Tasmania to Queensland, Years after a memorable and moving encounter with a cheeky turtle while swimming in a coral canyon on the Great Barrier Reef, this time I headed to Magnetic Island, my visit starting with a day trip back to the reef. For a few hours, we sped away from the island, on a boat that had suspended operations when Queensland's tourist industry was smashed by COVID border restrictions. This was its test voyage just ahead of the 2021-2022 summer season, We were a random mix of locals from the island and nearby Townsville, interstate visitors like me, taking advantage of the quiet before the storm of imminent border openings, and international travellers stuck in Australia since we closed to the world in March 2020. So there I landed, suddenly snorkeling with a 20-something exile from Zolzberg in a remarkable open aquarium. It was wondrous floating in these warmest of seas with those tropical fish and sparkling schools and seductive pears and that amazing blue and peach-colored coral beneath us. But part of my heart couldn't help sinking. Where's that turtle? The next day, I walked for hours in the baking heat with borrowed snorkeling gear and a stinger suit through the national park on the island and its sleeping clusters of koalas to beaches to which the roads now closed, First stop was a bay ringed by hoop pines and renowned for turtles. The spectacular beach was empty. I sat in the shadow of granite boulders and ate my packed lunch, then set out swimming to the closer reef. As I moved towards a party boat nearby, now motoring back to the sea, someone shrieked, We just saw a giant turtle! I guess they did, but it swam away, and the engine noise meant I wouldn't find it anytime soon. So... I kept walking to other beaches. Eventually, I landed at Radical Bay, where I now know in the 1980s there was a resort with a disco playing until dawn, which isn't there anymore. It is wildland, earmarked for a luxury property development that now seems to have failed. Conservationists still hope to buy it back for those elusive koalas and, I hope, visitors like me. We want to float away gently from our daily lives to find something very much better, like majestic sea turtles. I didn't get to meet any turtles face-to-face in the seas near Radical Bay that day, but I hope to return sometime soon and try my luck again. Meanwhile, 
I'm left with a special new memory. The sweet surprise of encountering that squirming hatchling, rescued in a bucket, which might have lived until morning. That was, we take turns peering into a plastic bucket. Inside is a batch of freshly hatched turtles by Natasha Chicha. The reader was Shaka Cook. And you can find photos of a green sea turtle and magnetic island in the link to this article on our website. Thanks for listening to the show today. I hope it's brought some relief from our human world right now. You can find links to all of today's articles on the Guardian Australia Reads website. This episode was produced by Camilla Hannon, Daniel Simo, Alison Chan and me, Jane Lee. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Catch you then.